We're excited to announce that Missoula Community Weekly will now be produced in partnership with the Montana Kaiman. Teaming up with our colleagues here at the University of Montana was a no-brainer, and we're excited about the reporting we'll be able to do together. From KBGA Radio and the Montana Kaiman, this is Missoula Community Weekly. I'm John Hooks. Students are flooding the University of Montana this week as a new school year starts. So to mark the occasion, our story this week stays on campus with a detour to Germany and the Bahamas. We take a look at an investigation carried out by the Kaiman earlier this year after a massive document leak in 2017 known as the Paradise Papers exposed the complex web of shady financial dealings and tax avoidance schemes used by wealthy individuals and corporations around the world and revealed records of the offshore financial dealings of major companies like Apple and Facebook, members of the Trump administration and the Queen of England, and even, surprisingly, the University of Montana Foundation. Here's that story. The first results have been released following an investigation of one of the biggest ever leaks of offshore secrets. 13 million documents, mostly from an offshore law firm called Appleby. Well, they are known as the Paradise Papers, and they reveal the tax affairs of rich and powerful people around the world. They've been obtained by the German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung and shared with the International Consortium of investigative journalism. In 2016, the Bermuda-based law firm Appleby was in full-blown panic mode. They had just suffered what they would later call a data security incident, but what was, in reality, a devastating hack where millions of documents had been seized that contained the names and details of offshore financial dealings that the prestigious law firm had helped shepherd through for its influential corporate and individual clients. In total, more than 13 million documents were taken, and a year later, they were leaked to two German journalists who, unable to sift through such a massive amount of data on their own, shared the leak with the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, a large collection of journalists from all around the world who had reported on the previous Panama Papers leak that had shortly preceded this one. The biggest revelations from the leak detailed a massive conspiracy by some of the wealthiest people in the world to hide their income from government taxation by funneling funds through mostly tropical nations like Bermuda that have much more lenient taxation laws than places like America. But documents in the leak also contain details of smaller organizations all over the world including more than 100 universities that had funds offshore. The ICIJ went through the vast pile of documents and created a database for journalists all over the world to search through and investigate, so they could report on organizations that they cover locally. This was where UM came into the picture. Well, I originally heard about it because my friend uh, sent me a Facebook message saying, hey, did you see the UM Foundation popped up in the Paradise Papers? And of course, that piqued my interest. He was on the uh, ICIJ's email list and saw that they were looking for local reporters that cover these universities to uh, dig deeper. That's Matt Newman. He's the current editor-in-chief of the Kaiman and has been covering the administration and budget crisis at UM for the last couple of years. So the ICIJ had posted this list of about 100 universities on its website. And they were looking for reporters that were already covering these universities to partner with them 
So I applied in December, and really to my disbelief, I uh, got accepted. Uh, in the initial Paradise Papers investigation, the only U.S.-based newspaper that had worked on it was the New York Times, so when I got accepted, I really thought it was somehow a fluke. So with over 13 million documents, just how do you even start? Where do you even begin with something like this? Well, it's uh, basically a heavily encrypted uh, search engine. Essentially, you can search anything on it, just like Google. So, of course, the first thing I searched was my own name to see if, uh, you know, anyone had stolen my identity and opened up an offshore account. Uh, luckily, it looks like I'm safe, at least not through this specific law firm. Um, then, of course, the second thing I searched was University of Montana and found about 700 documents initially. So the documents can be anything, uh, spreadsheets, PDFs, voicemails, emails, you name it. Um, this leak came from a law firm in Bermuda called Appleby. Appleby, is that any relation to the uh, fast casual neighborhood grill? Uh, despite the name, uh, I, I haven't found a link. Yeah, basically one of the services that Appleby provides for its clients um, is to set up various schemes of avoiding taxes in, in these people's home countries uh, in ways such as creating a shell company in a place like Bermuda where there's little to no taxes. Uh, a lot of hedge funds do this, private equity firms. Basically they pretend that uh, this little tropical island is their company's headquarters, so that's where they would pay the taxes as opposed to you know the U.S. where they would be taxed at a relatively much higher rate. Now, most of the documents that showed up in my first search were just noise, really. Uh, things like emails introducing some new lawyer to a firm somewhere. Maybe they had graduated from UM or worked at UM in the past at some point, and they mentioned it in the email, so it came up. But once I started to filter that out, I found about 60 documents showing the real reason UM had turned up in the leak. In 1950, the University of Montana and the Montana University System wanted to change the way the university cultivated and spent funds from private donors and the school's endowment. So they created the University of Montana Foundation as an independent 501c3 nonprofit organization that would handle the solicitation of donations and oversee the perpetual growth of UM's endowment, basically a private fundraising arm for the university. While UM and the Foundation are technically separate organizations, they operate very closely under a cooperation agreement that is ratified by the Board of Regents of the Montana University System. As the private funding arm of the university, the agreement states that the Foundation must be an active and prominent participant in the strategic planning of the university. As of 2016, the Foundation's assets totaled over $240 million. Now, those assets are primarily made up of contributions by donors, property holdings, and short- and long-term investments. Investments make up more than 85% of those assets, and the foundation puts a lot of that money into alternative investments, where private equity firms, hedge funds, and venture capital firms can collect a pool of money from a group of investors and then invest that money as they see fit. Most of the foundation investments are made with money contributed by donors, but there is a provision in the operating agreement that allows the university to invest its own funds with the foundation. 
If the university does that, those funds become pooled investments that are mixed in with foundation resources and invested at the foundation's discretion. If the University of Montana was investing money anywhere, it wouldn't take a massive leak of documents to find out. As a public university, it's subject to all the transparency laws in Montana's constitution. Those laws allow us to access all types of information about taxpayer-funded agencies like UM. But the foundation is different. The foundation has long maintained that they're not a part of the University of Montana, but rather a completely separate, private, nonprofit with a commitment to confidentiality that keeps it safe from anyone like Matt who wants to dig around in its internal operations. So basically what I found was that back in 2007, the foundation committed to invest $5 million over the next few years in this private equity firm called Collar Capital. Uh, the fund, which was structured as a partnership, ended up raising nearly $5 billion, the biggest fund of its kind at the time. Uh, other investors in there included the Qatari government, some California municipal pension funds, and there were a few other universities too in there, including uh, Oxford in England. Now that's where I actually got pretty lucky because The Guardian, who had worked on the initial Paradise Papers investigation, had reported Oxford's investment in the Collar International Fund and showed how the fund had in turn invested in deep sea oil drilling technology. So that laid a pretty clear roadmap for where I needed to look to basically connect all the dots. Matt's investigation found that the foundation had invested in equities that in turn invested in deep sea oil drilling technology. Matt also got his hands on investment portfolios from 2014 that showed the UM Foundation had investments in Gazprom, a Russian oil company with close ties to the Kremlin, and Petrobras, a Brazilian petrochemical company whose corruption scandal brought down two previous presidents in that country. And a list of the foundation's top 50 stock holdings included six major fossil fuel companies, as well as tobacco giants Philip Morris International and Imperial Tobacco Group. So Matt, that all seems kind of ethically challenging, but I wonder if, is any part of this practice illegal? Well, by default, no, not at all. Uh, the only stipulation is you need to report that you're doing it on your taxes and, you know, say, hey, I'm investing in this company in Bermuda and here's how much I invested in it. And the foundation did that. In fact, I could only see this one $5 million commitment the foundation made, but according to their public tax records, they've recently held and reported to the IRS investments of about $30 million in the Caribbean and Central America. So I could really only see details about a very small portion of their total offshore holdings. But no, at least in the part I could fully see, there was really no evidence of illegal activity on the part of the foundation. Where the illegal stuff would come in is if, you know, someone wasn't reporting it on their taxes to the IRS. So if there was nothing really illegal going on here, why did you think it was important to report on this story? Well, that's where it gets interesting and really opens up for a debate. The foundation's stance is that they are doing everything in their power to raise the most money they possibly can to support the university within the bounds of the law. And part of a smart investing technique is making sure your tax bill stays as low as possible. And of course, you know, that's great. The university needs as much money as it can right now. Anyone who reads the local news knows that. But really, what it comes down to is an ethical question. Should a foundation committed to helping fund higher education be investing its money in these places that often harbor all sorts of white-collar crime and profit off things like oil and gas drilling, which contributes to climate change? 
or should it be considering the ethics, the social and environmental impacts of its investments? You know, and there truly are good arguments for both sides. Uh, my mind certainly isn't made up on it, but it's a debate we can't even really have if the foundation isn't willing to be open about its investment practices. I will say that they aren't completely closed off. They do post some financial information, but you can actually see over the years there's less and less actual information publicly available about where and how it's investing. Aside from the obvious ethical questions, there's evidence to suggest that this practice may not be the most prudent way for the foundation to invest their money. Firstly, when the foundation puts money into equities and hedge funds, their investment becomes illiquid, meaning they don't have ready access to their cash if they need it in an emergency, say a recession or a budget crisis, for example. Investing offshore could also cost the foundation more in taxes. As a tax-exempt nonprofit, the foundation usually wouldn't have to pay a tax on common investments like stock holdings. But investments in things like hedge funds are subject to something called the unrelated business tax, which essentially says that those investments are so far out of the nonprofit's stated mission that they may put them in competition with private companies and are subject to taxation. So what was the reaction from the foundation like after you published your reporting? Well, first they said they wouldn't be able to comment before my deadline. Normally, with an investigation like this, I would hold off and let someone prepare a response before publishing. But one of the, I guess, unfortunate things about working with the ICIJ is all of the various reporters working on stories have to agree to publish on the same day. So I couldn't really push it back, not to mention I happened to be leaving the country on a study abroad trip the day it published. So I wrote that they weren't able to comment by deadline, but they'd be discussing a response and would get it to me later. So then before I got back to the States, the Missoulian actually reprinted our story uh, about two weeks after the Kaiman did initially, and they were able to get a comment from the foundation. We'll be publishing a response I got from them here soon. Um, their letter doesn't really say we got anything wrong, but it just stresses that what they did isn't illegal and that they review all their investments and they're all in good standing. Do you think your story will change anything about the way the foundation operates? Uh, no, not really. Not as far as investing. They've made it pretty clear that they'll do whatever it takes to raise money and that kind of wading into picking and choosing investments based on ethical considerations would overcomplicate things and prevent them from properly diversifying. So, no, not on that front. I am hopeful on the front of transparency, though. Uh, I met with the vice president of communications over there, uh, Heather Rue, last week, and we basically agreed that the best way to prevent this kind of negative story from coming out, or at least softening the blow of a negative story, is to be willing to be open and transparent and talk with each other, you know, actually have a conversation on a topic rather than them just issuing a blanket statement saying, you know, our only priority is to make money for UM. So I would say I'm cautiously optimistic for a better relationship there. It's not like they're an evil institution just because they're secretive. You know, they obviously help donors do a lot of great things for this campus and its students. But the lack of transparency can create a sense of mistrust, you know, even if that mistrust is totally unnecessary. It's just the human instinct to fear the unknown, I guess. If you liked this week's episode of Missoula Community Weekly, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to catch up on our old episodes and keep up to date with our future work. Thanks for listening.